Who thought we'd come in here? Maybe like two or three. All right, some, <laughs> some people. All right. Well, um, the reason this night, obviously, if you haven't heard so far, why we're meeting in a strange location is because Henry's on the market is still renovating. Got word just a couple days ago that it actually is taking longer than they expected, so that's why we're here tonight. But thank you for rolling with it with us. Uh, we, um, we'll head back over there afterwards. But I was going to have Brian say a little bit about this place that we're in uh, before we begin tonight. So we are in the Chapel of the Good Shepherd. And Chapel of the Good Shepherd was built early in the 19th century to accommodate something that was a newfangled invention, which was Sunday school for children. And that was something that had not ever been a thing. And St. Philip's had one of the early and really big Sunday schools with several hundred um, children. One of the interesting things is that there was um, a mixed congregation in terms of race, uh, white, uh, free people of color, as well as enslaved people of color. Uh, and the noted uh, abolitionist, the Grimke sisters, actually taught in the Sunday school here. Uh, so this building has uh, been around for um, almost 200 years. It was hit by a tornado uh, in the 1930s, and then it was uh, re built slightly then by a very famous architect named Ralph Adams Cram, um, who did the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York City and St. Thomas Fifth Avenue and the Cadet Chapel at West Point. Uh, and almost all of his works are Gothic. This is the one thing he did that wasn't. And behind me is the Appleton organ, which is, uh, if you know anything about music, if you know about violins, if you want to have the greatest violin maker ever, that would be a Stradivarius, and they're unbelievably expensive. An Appleton organ is maybe a little bit like that. Appleton was the greatest American organ builder. Um, they're very rare. This one was originally in the Charleston Orphan House. And uh, if you go to New York City and go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, they have an entire exhibit focused on the Appleton organ that they have acquired for that museum. And we have this one just sitting here, which is super cool. Yeah, this space is really underutilized uh, at St. Philip's. It, and so it's, I, it's actually my favorite place on the entire campus. And I've been teaching a Sunday school here for, gosh, a couple years now. I've done different classes. And we're about to start up a parenting class. So for those of you who want to be parents one day uh, that might be pertinent it starts this Sunday but it's a it's a lovely room and I've, I've loved being in here tonight we're going to talk about the mere Anglicanism conference I'm curious who all actually attended at least one session of that conference all right oh, good great so um, even if you didn't we're going to process a little bit of it together so you really didn't need to go um, <laughs> to be here tonight you definitely needed to go you didn't, you didn't, it's not a requirement to come tonight. So, uh, but I'm really excited because we heard some amazing talks at this and um, the, the topic of the conference was speaking the truth in love. And I think that's such an important thing today is uh, we tend to err maybe on one side of that, either not speaking the truth fully or not speaking it in love. And this conference was how can we do that as wisely as we can given some of the really controversial things in the world today. So there's a number of topics 
Uh, we have a number of books. And Brian, are these the books that you bought? Um, some are the books that I bought. I, some I, are I the books that I brought. Just one of my bags, bags that I yes. bought. Um, which I was going to go into, but I guess I was I on a know. book diet because at the C.S. Lewis Mirror Anglicanism last year, I bought um, approximately $600 worth of books. Um, so I had to cut down a little bit. Sorry, Jane, if you're listening to that. <laughs> yeah, I owe an apology to Molly, too. It was about that for me last year. <laughs> it was substantially less this year. But what, what did you bring? Well, the funny thing is that... <laughs> You can tell we didn't compare notes, that we brought, like, the same books. So we both have True Friendship, we both have Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, we both have the Secular Creed. You can tell why we're friends. And I would have brought that, but I couldn't find it, but I brought... <laughs> this is actually your copy, you're just kidding. Yeah. And I, I brought this very similar one, 10 questions every teen should ask and answer about Christianity by the same author. So, so you brought, yeah, just the people, these were the speakers, right? Um, I brought some stuff, uh, if you're interested, I can tell you what I bought, but since Brandon, I bought some stuff that, that was really fun in the bookstore. It was, it was tempting, I will say. So, um, well, you know, addressing a topic where, you know, the... Um, the new morality, right? Is that mm -hmm. what the, the church and the challenge of the new morality was the yeah. subtitle for the conference? And so I thought it was appropriate that D.A. Carson, Dr. D.A. Carson, began the conference by going to the Bible. We should always go first to what does the Bible say to give us a framework to approach a lot of, or to everything in the world. And so I loved his talk and starting there. Um, anything that you, that stood out to you in that talk? Yes. Yeah, so. Uh, he spent most of his time in Isaiah and then switched, well, most of his time in Colossians with a little bit in Isaiah on the front end, but he was in Colossians 3, and he was talking about the whole idea of um, doing what Colossians 3 says, and what that is, is to set your eyes on things above where Christ is, and that the focus of our hearts and our minds needs to be proactively set on Christ. And then he said, as part of that, uh, that and he had, a, he had a great little uh, sort of uh, way of helping to remember this, the first part was to have the right address, which means to be focused on the things that are above, not just on things of the world. And the second thing he talked about was to be wearing the right clothes. And in Colossians, it talks about casting off, it's very proactive, again, casting off all these things. And he talked about, why would you, if you'd been like outside mucking out a nasty clogged drain, and then you put those clothes, you know, in the hamper, would you get up again the next morning and pull out those mud caked, stinky clothes and wear them again? No, you would put on new clothes. And he says, it's the same thing when we come to Christ, that we need to put on what, what Colossians says, which is compassion, kindness, forgiveness, tenderheartedness, all of those kinds of things. And then he said, uh, so you have right address, uh, right clothes, and then we need to be singing the right songs. And he said, it's really easy for us to adopt the refrains of the world and have the music of the world running through our minds. But what scripture tells us to do is to have our minds 
occupied with the word of God and to be singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs so that in a way this becomes a big circle because those types of things focus us back onto setting our minds on things above. So that was sort of the framing for everything else that was going to happen. I think that's really helpful because if you, um, as, as Christians, one of the things that's remarkable about Colossians 3 is, is if you um, trust in Jesus, your citizenship is actually not here on earth. All these language, the um, images of where your true address is, is actually not here. Like we're pilgrims, we're sojourners, we're on a journey to the promised land of, of heaven. And so fundamentally, we shouldn't expect to uh, have the world totally understand everything about us and to, to not have the same uh, way of viewing the world and to expect that on the front end, but instead to seek where we actually are. It says we're raised with Christ uh, in heaven. And so to set our minds on that. But the thing with that talk that really stood out to me was he, he went to the book of Acts in that last one mm-hmm. and make sure we're singing the right songs. And he really talked about gratitude, which it was funny. It's so many things that we've talked about at Theology on Tap. Like we've, yep. he, they, they really hit throughout the conference. But um, We're going to send them a bill. Yeah, they can. <laughs> if they have any other questions, they can always ask us. Yeah. <laughs> No, he went to the book of Acts, and he was like, nowhere in the early church, when you're looking at the first Christians, as they're being persecuted, and they face persecution, none of them are grumbling and complaining. Instead, what he, I forget the place that he went to, but it was like, they rejoiced, and they, they gave were thanks worthy that they were, to suffer for the name. That they counted yep. worthy. They were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus, and that I was like, "Wow, this is such a, an amazing way to start." We're, this world is not our home, and our fundamental posture should be even as we face. Yeah, probably I think Von Roberts in his uh, sermon said not so much persecution but pressure. Right. As we yep. face pressure here and now, maybe one day persecution, our first instinct should to be to to be giving thanks that we're considered worthy of the name of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, the next guy was Carl Truman, who was a former professor of mine in seminary. I was really excited to hear him. What did you think of his talk? I loved his talk. It was so good. So Carl Truman wrote this book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, uh, which won, uh, I think, Christianity Today's award as the book of the year or something like that. Um, it is a really important book, and it's on the whole idea of how did we get to where we are in our culture of this idea about identity and sort of disembodied identity and all of those kinds of things? And so he gave a really helpful talk about things that are um, reasons that we have, that our culture has sort of gone off the rails in some of these matters. And so uh, he had several main points. One of them was that we have now embraced this idea that to be human is to cast off all limitations, that any kind of limit or limitation is bad, and so we should reject all of those. He also said we've rejected the idea of teleology, which is a big fancy word, Uh, but basically that means the idea of purpose, that you were made for a purpose, which that has been part and parcel of the understanding and the Christian faith of what it means to be made in the image of God. That if you are made in the image of God, you are made well, and you are made for a purpose, and you are made to live a life 
of meaning and value because you were made in the image of God. You are not a random assemblage of atoms whose life doesn't matter. Um, so those, those were the first two things that he talked about. And you know, both of those were really, really important. And then the last one I'm blanking it's on. A rejection of natural obligation. Yes, a rejection of natural obligation. And the whole idea that goes, flows right out of the teleology and purpose part, that you were made for something. And that the way that you were made tells you some things. And so one of the, one of the things that he talked about was the fact that we, we want to reject this idea um, that there, there's guidance in the way that we are made. So for example, one of the things that um, he talked about was this amicus brief that was filed with the Supreme Court um, during the whole Roe versus Wade controversy. And there were a lot of female athletes that filed this amicus brief basically saying our femaleness and our female bodies and the fact that we can bear children get in the way of our ability to be able to perform. And we need to be able to have abortions at will in order that we can compete in exactly the same way as a man might compete. And so that, that, sort of, that is a revolutionary way of thinking about what it means to be human and, uh, and a rejection of the idea that there is guidance in nature. And part of, and I could go on and on about this because he was really quoting um, without attribution, um, but really taking a lot of ideas that are in C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man and this whole idea that um, in our modern world, we think that we can, nature is raw material that we can just do with what we want. And he said, the example he used, I thought was so poignant, is that in the ancient world, you would see this beautiful river and the river would flow and it was life-giving because there were fish and people would boat and all of that. But it was somewhat inconvenient because to get to the other side of the river, you had to forge the river and that was not always easy. And so eventually people developed the idea that we can build a bridge over this river. And that respected the river, but left the river intact and beautiful, but enabled people to cross to the other side. But he said the modern view is the river is only an impediment. Mm -hmm. And what we need to do is dam up the river so that we can develop all of that land that's there. And he said that is a fundamental change. And that is where the whole meat Lego Gnosticism came in that I will let you comment on. That was fun. He actually, I, we were back, so I got to um, walk, uh, basically his minder or conference assistant uh, for Dr. Carl Truman. And I told him, you know, I have a bet uh, actually, because um, he has heard of Mary Harrington who wrote um, a couple books, but one of the things she came up with Actually, he said she came up with it apparently one day in the shower. It was the idea of meat Lego Gnosticism. And uh, when I was growing up, the, the term, uh, what was it, moralistic therapeutic deism? Has anybody ever heard of that before? Uh, it's the idea, like, in the world that uh, it's, it's all about just being a good person, morality. Um, therapeutic, meaning it's about how we feel and just making ourselves feel better. And deism is God's kind of just out there. He's not super personal. So moralistic, therapeutic yeah. deism was kind of the functional way of the world as they thought about religion and God. 
Um, well, today, I think meat leg agnosticism is a very appropriate term that Mary Harrington thought of. And I said, if you can drop this um, in your talk just casually, I'll win a $20 bet. That'd be great. <laughs> and he did. It was amazing. And uh, Brian promptly texted me, that's cheating. You can't actually do that. <laughs> so, uh, alas. But anyways, no, it, I think that is exactly what we're talking about here is the, um, uh, our bodies are just really like a meat Lego. They're the idea, there's just this raw material that we can manipulate, rearrange yeah. as will. It really has no purpose. And uh, Gnosticism is an ancient heresy that basically says that the, the body's really not that important. It's really the, the spiritual, the inner life, the uh, immaterial. That's the stuff that is much yes. better. Yes, and that yourself, yourself, yes, your true self, and our understanding today has nothing to do with your body. It has nothing to do with who you were created to be or the body that God gave you. Yourself is actually this sort of amorphous idea that exists somehow within you, which is completely an innovation in the history of philosophy and of religion. Yeah. I love the way um, we're going to have to speed it up here. I'm realizing it, but uh, we could go on. So (laughs) we have to touch on how he actually concluded. So he gave these three things. We've rejected the limits that we think that because we have things like technology, we, we really can just cast off all limitations. That's kind of who we are now. We also have rejected the idea that there's a there's a goal, there's a purpose for our lives, this teleological end. Um, and then we've rejected a natural obligation to the world around us. But he had three counterpoints. He said, what can the church do in response to that? If that's the diagnosis of the world today, what can we do as the church? What does Christianity have to say about that? And it's basically... Well, it was creed and teaching, so strong biblical teaching, as another speaker, Rebecca McLaughlin, put it, lapping up the scriptures. Mm-hmm. I love that turn of phrase. So creed and scriptural teaching. Second, liturgy, the beauty of worship with liturgy that points us to unchangeable truth. And then the third thing was community that is characterized by hospitality and deep gospel friendship, not not just hanging out, but real, vulnerable, caring, burden-bearing and sharing, deep friendship that precludes the possibility of loneliness when you're in the body of Christ. So he said, obviously, we've got a long way to go to get to those three counterpoints, but they were um, beautifully put. Yeah, I, it really set up the rest of the conference, too, because that was uh, it started to get more and more practical these first two sessions, he talked about framing it from the scriptures, and then I think Carl Truman did an excellent job of kind of a cultural analysis, but uh, really just barely touched on at the end, practically, how do we live into this? And a lot of what the speakers did after that was lean in practically to how we can. So yeah. in the time we have together, uh, which in about five minutes, talk maybe, maybe one of the others that you really liked. Oh, that's so hard. Can you tell we're sort of enthusiastic about what we heard? Um, If you'd like to hear more, we'd love to talk to you. Uh, So uh, there were several that I thought were just remarkable, but one of the ones that I thought was particularly poignant was um, Sam Albury, Mm -hmm. um, who is a British priest who has dealt all of his life with same-sex attraction, has chosen to be celibate, and has this amazing teaching and preaching ministry. He was invited 
um, by Tim Keller before he died to preach the um, homily at Tim Keller's funeral. Um, but Sam gave a talk about our bodies and why they matter. And he started off the talk by saying he had gotten a text from a dear friend of his saying, pray for me, I'm getting ready to go to the beach. And I thought this was gonna lead into pray for me because I'm gonna struggle with lust when I see all of these people in bathing suits on the beach. But that was not it at all, that his friend, who was a guy um, who was sort of out of shape, was really embarrassed to go to a beach where he would have to take off his shirt. Mm -hmm. And he felt the sense of shame that he was not buff like all of the guys that you see in ads and uh, at the gym and all of that. And he went on to talk about how our culture has developed this impossible ideal of what the body should look like and that whether you're a man or a woman, that most of us feel that we've fallen deeply short of that and that because of that we are, we feel shame and we feel all of these things and we want to change our body. And he said, one of the best practices you can develop is that when you look in the mirror in the morning to say thanks and praise to God for the body that you have been given, a body that has a heart and a brain and eyes that can see and feet that can walk and that God has made you beautifully. And he, I'm not doing it justice, but it was profoundly moving. Yeah, I, that was probably the, there were just a couple points in the conference that I was really moved and that was one of them. And I thought it was so profound because I think what he did in a way that none of the other speakers really did was speak to the heart of how we all truly feel inside about ourselves. And I think named that. Um, and I, I thought, yeah, so that his talk, basically, he went to 1 Corinthians 6, 13, which said that the Lord is for the body mm -hmm. and the body is for the Lord. And his whole talk was literally, let's take both of those yep. statements. What does it mean that the Lord is for the body? And he talked a little bit about just how profoundly positive the Christian understanding of our bodies are. That um, we as individuals, Christianity uh, says that God made us and who we are is both body and soul. We, we don't so much have a body as we are a body. And that that was knit together in uh, our mother's womb. Fearfully and wonderfully. Fearfully and wonderfully yep. made. And uh, even with all of the shame that I think all of us carry to some degree about how our bodies look, that God says this is good. That this looks at it and says, this is good. So that the Lord was for the body, but then he also went on to say the body is for the Lord. What did he mean by that? Well, I think what he meant is that what we do with our body matters and that we want to try to, and scriptures talk about glorify God with your body and that um, participating in things that the scripture says are sin is not a way to do that. And that if, if your body is for something, just in the same way, um, he, he used a great example of the spoon that he found in a friend's drawer when he was house-sitting. And he said the spoon was a normal-looking spoon, but it had a big hole in the middle of it. And he was like, that's weird. And so he thought he would just try putting it in the sugar bowl when people came to tea and see what happened. And so he did that, and people were like, what? <laughs> what? And so the, it was just sort of an object of ridicule. But then he learned from another friend that it was an olive spoon. 
And what it was designed for was to be put into the jar of olives that are in all the syrup and to pull the olive out of the jar and then have everything else drain out so the olive was perfect and ready for you to eat. And he said that is the difference of using your body for what it's made for. That when you are trying to um, fit the square peg in the round hole or however you want to put it, that we, we fail to live into what the Lord has made the body for. But when we are glorifying God with our body, it's like that olive spoon that just like makes everything better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, um, you went to Romans 12, like in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies that is your spiritual form, spiritual of, of act worship. of worship. Yep. Uh, but it was actually, he took a, one of those passages that said, this is startling that uh, in 1 Corinthians, it talks about the spirit of God dwelling in us. And that would have been crazy to the first century because God dwelt in the temple. And he says, actually, your body is a temple of almighty God. And so we're to honor God with our bodies. And one of the things that 1 Corinthians 6 says is that you are not your own. You were bought with a price, therefore yeah. honor God with your body. In every way, he went into what would it mean to honor um, with our eyes, with our hands, with our, our thumbs, he said. You know, not just our lips, but we often use our thumbs to communicate now. Um, and sexuality, he, all of these things. What would it mean to honor God with that? And I thought that was a, another moving part of, you know, when, when you hear those words, you are not your own. Right. You were bought. Yeah. Those are horrific words. Those are terrifying words. Unless the one who owns you, who, who, who you belong to, is actually the one who gave his life for you. I thought that was a profoundly moving yes. thing to think about. Yes. And the freedom of offering. Because he said you're a slave to either yourself or something else. Um, but when you offer your body to God, that is true freedom. Mm-hmm. So that was profound. Um, we got to close up here. I loved Amy Orr Ewing's talk. I love Rebecca McLaughlin's talk. We should talk about them. But I, I loved John Dixon when he talked about hospitality, right? And this is one of the Gospel things. Gospel hospitality in a fractured world. Yeah, yeah. and that's, he told the story of his own conversion, really, in many ways, where it, he was a little wild Australian uh, teenager, it sounded like, and there was this, I think she was single, but she yep. had to be in her yep. 40s, 50s, Older 60s. school teacher. Yeah. I think she was a widow. Oh, she's a widow. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he ran with this kind of rough crowd, and there was all sorts of stuff going on, but she just was relentless in opening up her home and inviting them in, and um, one of the things that happened was they all were at some party one evening, and one of the friends got so drunk um, they were like, what do we do with him? Well, you know, our friend, the widow, lives down the street. She's probably the only one who will actually take him in. And so they, at like, he said midnight or something like that, they knocked Rang on the, the door. Rang the doorbell, yep. And she's hosting a, a dinner party, but she didn't skip a beat. She opened the door, took him in, knew, could see and smell this guy was just a mess. But she was like, there's a back room. Go quickly <laughs> around this way. Don't disturb the dinner guests, um, and we'll deal with him in the morning. And in the morning, she's in the kitchen just whipping up eggs and bacon and doing all this stuff. And it was like, that woman, he said, when you are that kind of person, the world really struggles to say, man, Christianity is good for nothing. He said, you're that kind of person. You can have a profound effect and a witness on the world. And it's just that act of opening up your home and hospitality that goes hand in hand with speaking the truth and love. What did you think about 
any any part of that talk or one of the other ones? I, I thought it was phenomenal. One thing that I do want to mention um, that these talks will ultimately be available, but two talks that are available right now that were both amazing. We had um, mm -hmm. Vaughn Roberts, who is the rector of St. Abbs Church in Oxford. Uh, one of the remarkable things about that church is it's right in the heart of Oxford. And if you go during term time, there will be three to 400 Oxford University students in this church. It is truly a world-changing ministry. And he preached at the Conference Eucharist and then also here at St. Philip's on Sunday morning and uh, just did a phenomenal job. So if you go on the St. Philip's YouTube channel, um, you can find both those sermons. Uh, but the first one he preached out of the book of Daniel, um, looking at Daniel while he was um, a captive in exile and talked about um, what we can learn from that. And it was um, don't withdraw, don't compromise, do not be afraid, and do not be afraid. Yeah. And it was it was just powerful. And then on Sunday morning, um, he preached out of Hebrews chapter ten, um, focusing on um, Jesus and the access that we have to God because of who Jesus is. Mm -hmm. And it was just profound. So I would really recommend both of those. Both of those were amazing. And I will say, uh, Vaughn Roberts, who was the, the preacher, had a profound impact on my life earlier on. And this book, if you're, you're welcome to come up here afterwards uh, and look at any of these, but he wrote a book called God's Big Picture that was kind of the aha moment in my mind. Up to that point, I thought kind of the Old Testament was all like the law and everybody's just trying to do good things for God. Uh, they don't do them really well in the Old Testament, but then in the New Testament, that's where grace shows up. And he just takes it little by little and a really, it's not super big, but he showed how it's one big story and it's all of grace and it centers on Jesus. And so this was a I got him to sign it. I had a little uh, fanboy moment, which was great. Um, but God's big picture, it's a great resource. So um, with that... There's so much more to say. You have no idea how yeah, hard that's, this is. Yeah, that's just uh -huh. the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Um, but do we get a mod? We didn't. John, would you be willing to moderate tonight? Do you have your phone? Does everybody have their, their sheets? Uh, I didn't explain this, but if this is your first time, you'll see you can... Send any question. They should be down here. It doesn't have to relate to anything we talked about. You can also join our email list. And uh, Victoria is hosting on the 29th at her house the next Holy City Life event. And that is going to be a fun bonfire. So you can get more details at that one down there. Uh, but John, if you would come up. I have a, a special bishop's chair, I think, tonight. Wow. I don't know if it has... It has... <laughs> It's the rise and triumph of the modern self. It's actually so low. <laughs> you don't have to sit there. It's okay. Uh, that, that's so <laughs> tiny. I should have. That was great. I saw it like in that seat, so I don't know. How how is it that low? I think maybe the legs got shortened at some point. <laughs> Not that I know. That's hilarious. <laughs> I didn't even notice. You can tell I didn't sit down in it. <laughs> okay, it looks like we got enough to get started here. Okay, first question. <clears throat> Do you have advice for talking with friends who have walked away from the faith and are ascribing to the new morality? Yes, that is 
such a great question, and that is where a lot of us are living. I mean, I have friends like that, and I'm sure most of you do as well. And I think one of the things that we heard, Amy or Ewing's presentation was particularly strong on that. And one of the things she talked about was that we need to recover the skill of listening. And that part of, um, she, she talked some about her own experience of that she maybe thought she was like the celestial um, ambassador of like fixing people. And so she would want to go in and like dump all this truth on people um, in a way that was really not helpful. And that she had learned to begin to listen and then to think about what was it, um, to use her mind to think about what is it that is attracting this, driving these people away or attracting them to these other things. And then to begin gently, because she talked a lot about gentleness, um, to begin gently to explore with them. Because she said a lot of times the motivations behind why people are choosing whatever direction they're going, that the motivations are actually motivations that you could say are rooted in the way that God has made us, that they are longing for intimacy, they are longing for love, um, they are longing for, for things that are, that are good things, but they are, like the old song says, looking for love in all the wrong places. Um, and so she said, you know, listen, listen with empathy, try to look for what they're being drawn to, what the reason behind why they're being drawn, and show through your life and through winsome, well-placed words why Christ offers a more beautiful way, but that that also requires great patience, mm -hmm. that this is not something that you're going to, in a matter of three meetings at Harkin, um, be able to change your friend's mind, but it is a walking together over a period of years that this begins to make a difference. Yeah, I found her, she gave a, a series of questions that I found really, really helpful. Um, you alluded to some of them. So what is, listening for what they actually believe. What, what is it that this person believes? Can you articulate that in a way that is almost even better than they could? Mm -hmm. And that's true and speak it back to charity, yeah. right? Um, this was another kind of tying what you were saying, but what wrongs are they trying to right? What are the, the intense emotions, the strong beliefs, what are the wrongs that they're perceiving that they're trying to right? And then ultimately, if Christianity is true, which we, we believe it is, it gives a better answer. And tying to that, maybe, um, maybe the things that they're actually longing for or uh, believing that are good or the wrongs that are out there th that uh, they're trying to right, they actually the only basis, the only true basis to actually feel angry and upset at those wrongs is a Christian understanding of the world. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a really helpful thing, but as you said, it's not something that happens overnight. It's the prolonged, sustained care, long-suffering um, to just be there in the times. And I think one of the, oh, she mentioned about going into a school, right, where... Um, you know, most of the, I was with the Archbishop of Canterbury, I think, and she, she said that I disagree. They were on this like mission into the, the school and um, with all these kids, and they all subscribed to, you know, just basically you should be able to sleep whoever with you. We, the whole um, world understanding of sexuality, just you can do whatever you want with your body um, and that sort of thing. And so she disagreed with the Archbishop of Canterbury, she said, but she, she asked this to all the, the students in the school. She said, 
you know, there's really two things that you have. There's two, two possibilities. One is um, that you, this could be true, the, the world's understanding of sexuality. You could go about trying to do this. And let me just ask, like, how's that going? How's it working for you? Do you actually find the fulfillment that it is promising? Or the other possibility of living is, is that actually what Jesus said is true. That this man who was born in Nazareth, claimed to be God, rose from the dead, and said that service to me is ultimate freedom, and, and giving up your whole life, including your body, in my service, is the way of life. She said, both those can't be true. But how's it going in the one that you're doing right now? And I thought that was a really helpful question. Yeah. Why Anglicanism over other denominations? Well, that's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a trap is what that is. Yeah. So I, I, will, I, will, I will say a couple of things about that. There are many denominations that are um, seeking to be faithful biblically and in, in every way. Uh, and I, I would never go so far as to say Anglicanism is the only denomination by any stretch of the imagination. However, I will say that Anglicanism, if you subscribe, for example, to what Carl Truman said are the counterpoints about how to live in this culture, Anglicanism has all of those things when it is at its best. It has creedal, biblical, scriptural teaching that is strong and central and is required of everybody in the Anglican church to be in the scriptures with scripture read and preached on in services. It also has liturgy. It has an ancient and beautiful and deeply rooted theological liturgy that is the way that we worship. That we don't, Justin and I don't wake up on a Sunday morning and think about, well, what do we want to sort of emphasize in this worship service today? Um, it is not something that we have freedom about. It is a path that we are directed on, that is a path that has been there. That liturgy um, has roots that are at least a thousand years back. And then the third part is gospel hospitality and community. And that is something that um, is more congregation by congregation probably than denomination by denomination. But that is something that there's a huge emphasis on in our congregation. Um, part of my job title here at St. Philip's is hospitality ministry. There are not a lot of places that have that. Mm -hmm. But the reason we have that is because that's part of what it means to be Anglican. So I think that there, um, the Anglican way of Christianity offers beauty, truth, and goodness in a way that maybe some other expressions do not. Yeah, yeah. one of the things uh, that this conference inadvertently probably brought up was what are things that are most important and what are things that Christians can disagree on? And that was actually one of the things that draws me to Anglicanism is that um, we aren't going to divide over things that are second order issues, right? And I think that is one of the things that appeals to me, um, but I think you said it so well that there, 
that's not at all to say other traditions aren't Christian, right? I think that's important. But every, whether you're Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist or Anglican or Catholic or non-denominational even, you have a set of beliefs about why you do what you do. Everyone does. Um, and so that, that, I think, would, I would echo those things. It, it's, a, um, it's rooted in history. It believes the Bible above all else. And it actually interprets the Bible as it's been understood, as if we're not the first ones ever reading it, but relying on those who've gone before. Um, and I think that's what draws me to Anglicanism. Should married Christians use birth control? That's a great question. That didn't come up on the conference. It did not. It did not. Um, if this is a topic that you're interested in, I would really commend to you some of the books by a woman named Mary Eberstadt, um, who is a brilliant intellectual Christian who's written very thoughtfully about this. Um, so I think this is one of those areas where um, you can build an argument on both sides of that issue. But one of the things that I would say is that um, part of what it means to be male and female and part of what used to be the natural consequence of having sexual intimacy between a man and a woman was the possibility of pregnancy and the understanding that the um, the teleology, if you will, the purpose um, for sex was not only enjoyment, but fruitfulness, and that children are a blessing from the Lord. And Mary Aberstadt has a book that's called Adam and Eve After the Pill. Um, and basically she has the birth control pill changed the entire experience that humanity had had from the time of creation by divorcing pregnancy and life-giving and children from sex and making sex purely a recreational activity where now, and this because I'm old, I have seen such a like sea change in this since the time I was a child. Um, now that sexual intimacy and pleasure is seen as a right um, to be enjoyed in any context whatsoever that you might want to have it. That's sort of the basic old 60s, if it feels good, do it thing. Um, and that clearly is not a Christian viewpoint. There might well be reasons that from time to time birth control would be appropriate for um, Christians, husbands and wives. But there, yeah, that, that is something that... Um, on some of these difficult issues calls for wisdom and discernment. Yeah. A, a book that I found really helpful is called God, Marriage, and Family. They have a couple chapters in this. It's by Andreas Kostenberger. And um, so, yeah, it go, does. it's really hard to overstate just how much the introduction of the pill. Truman talked about this in mm -hmm. his talk, actually, mm -hmm. Mere Anglicanism, was the rise of technology. Now what happens is you can... Uh, we can basically believe this natural world, our bodies, are there's no purpose to them, and therefore it, it's almost like an accident, these things that if they go against what we want, um, and, and that's exactly what's happened with birth control, is the natural um, uh, 
consequence of having sex, which is having a child, is often seen as a problem, something to right. be overcome. Be overcome. And yeah. that is not at all uh, the case. And so one of the things that they make in that book, uh, God, Marriage, and Family, is not all birth control is the same. Uh, and I, I would fall on the side of this as any sort of contraceptive pill or um, act that actually kills any sort of conception. Uh, the moment that, that there's something conceived, then um, that is actually uh, that is wrong. We shouldn't do yeah, that. Problematic. Problematic. Yeah. And I, I'll confess to you, I've become more open to uh, the the just because I've seen this. I'm not. Um, I don't. I forgot how old I was the other day. Somebody asked how old, and I really I'm past 35 now, and I honestly forgot. But it's old. It's old enough to actually see a little bit maybe of what you're talking about. Of and it's drawn me closer to. Truly, the Roman Catholic Church, which had this hard tie to all sex or sexual activity, had to have the possibility of procreation. Um, all I've seen is the ramifications of how much we denigrate um, children and life, and children are not something that... We often have such a high standard of what children must be in terms of how much money you have to have to all this, and that's true, but... Um, and it doesn't mean you should necessarily have 50 children, and that may not be wise in every circumstance. But there's other you know, natural family planning, things like that. But the problem, I think, in our culture right now is that the natural consequences of sexual activity, which is uh, having children, is seen as something to be overcome. And therefore, looking at actually um, the purpose of this is actually to create life, and that's a mm -hmm. good thing. And our problem is we err too much right now in our cultural moment on, on seeing this as being overcome yep. as convenient. So, um, yeah, it's a good question. Okay, someone asked if you could uh, type up a list of the books that you brought tonight and submit an email. Okay. So. <laughs> oh, I gotta write a paper now. Uh, <laughs> All right. um, does it matter if Christians are cremated or buried? Oh, what a great question. That is also a great question. I would say no, it does not, so long as both are done with reverence. Um, I think that it is very clear in Scripture that the body matters and that we will, um, when we die, uh, we go to be with the Lord, but that one day on that last great day when the dead will be raised, that the, the scripture talks about our resurrection bodies, that we will not be disembodied, Casper the friendly ghost floating around up there, um, but that there will be a body, but that is something that God can reconstitute. So it is not something where you have to say, you, you, know, you have to be embalmed and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but I think that the important thing is that uh, because your body is made in the image of God, that it be treated with reverence, whatever method you choose. Yeah. Um, has anybody ever heard a sermon on this before? I'm curious. I've, I've almost never heard any kind of in a Sunday sermon teaching on what happens actually with our bodies when we die. And I think that's a question a lot of people have and mm -hmm. that are profoundly wrong when I talk to people in general about what the Bible teaches. Interestingly enough, before mere Anglicanism, I listened to Vaughn Roberts. He had, I went to his website, and I, had, I was like, I've never heard him preach. I wonder, and he had a whole series. The first thing on there was a biblical understanding of the body. And it started in Genesis, and it ended with exactly this question. And so the, the sermon that he gave was um, about 1 Corinthians 15, which talked about our resurrected bodies. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that he says is, you know, 
when you die, your, your body decays, right? It goes, whether it's cremated or goes into the ground, it's going to decay unless the Lord Jesus comes back really quickly. Um, but that's natural, that's normal. And our spirit, like the thief on the cross who trusted in Jesus, goes to be with the with Lord. Jesus in paradise and That's right. And that time between when that body and soul are separated is called the intermediate state. And it says at the very end, you know, if you have the creed, right, we say that the creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We, we talk about Jesus rising on the third day, but there's a second resurrection that we also confess, the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. The resurrection of the dead is the second resurrection in the creed, and it's about all people having new bodies, some for judgment and others to go be with the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth. That actually comes down. Uh, so whether you're cremated or buried is really, in my opinion, a, kind of irrelevant, um, which is why we do both of them, I yep. guess. But the point is you, you get a new glorified body, which we don't exactly know what that's like, but we know it's like Jesus is in some, some way. It just doesn't tell it's us. It's good. It's good. Yes. That's it. It's good. What do Anglicans think of the Pope? Okay. Um, this is I, I, I would have a hard time presuming to speak about what all Anglicans would say about the Pope. Um, I think doctrinally, the Anglican Church's understanding of the Pope is that we would not ascribe to the idea that the Pope has um, the ability to speak for God um, and to make final um, pronouncements about what scriptures mean or all those kinds of things. Um, traditionally, the Anglican understanding is that the Pope was the Bishop of Rome and that like any other bishop, he had certain rights and authorities um, as part of that, but that we would, we would not see him as the head of the church. That being said, because we are a church that has orders of ministry, bishops, priests, and deacons, um, we would say that there is respect that is due to a bishop, um, but we would not um, feel under any constraint to follow um, the guidance of what the Pope said. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep, I agree. <laughs> I don't have anything to add to that one. Okay. Is it okay for Christians to attend a gay wedding? That was the question I asked the panel, and I'm glad it, well, nobody knows that I put that question in there, but we, um, now they do. So anyways, that was, that was the question I asked uh, in the panel discussion to uh, behind the scenes. But, and Sam Albury answered it. Yeah. And did an excellent job, I thought. What he said is that he personally would not lay down a black and white rule about that, that what he would say is, first of all, to be glad that you are the kind of Christian that your gay friend would want to be there at their wedding, that that says something good about the love and compassion that are going on in the friendship. I love that he started with that. Too. Yes. Such a good... But he said, it is a matter of wisdom and discernment. And he said, if you are in the situation where your friend would believe or it would look as if you were um, blessing and saying this is this is a great thing that this marriage is happening 
that that should give you pause about participating. Um, I don't know how much more he elaborated about it, but his basic thing was that you need to look at the situation, you need to pray about it, you need to look at scripture, um, you need to think about the idea of being a stumbling block, um, you need to think about all of these things prayerfully before deciding what to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of factors that I think you have to consider, and so it's hard to lay a blanket statement, in my opinion, because if you think about, for instance, um, you know, say you go to an average, what people think of as a, um, a wedding, right? It's, if it's in a church, if there's vows that are being exchanged, you know, there's usually this part where they say, if anyone here can show just cause why these two may not be married in accordance with God's word, speak now or forever hold your peace. Well, that could be really awkward. You, your conscience in that case should be bound to speak up. Um, so that would be an instance where, you know, that might... Uh, not be the most hospitable thing to show up in that scenario. There's also, uh, if you think about some places where, well, all of you present, and these are the vows that are made in a Christian wedding service. Right. Um, do all in your power. Do all in your power yeah. to support this couple. Uh, well, um, what that means is that this is actually wrong to be, to be married. Um, you know, there's another scenario where I can conceive the possibility where... Uh, and I think this may be different, too, if you're a priest and people know that you're an actual representative of the church, and that's one of the things. Um, I think it might be different if you are a lay person, that sort of thing. But if you, uh, let's say you're just the average person, uh, and this couple knows you've known them forever, and you've made it abundantly clear to them that you can't actually affirm what they're doing. And they know that you know. That they know that you know that sort of thing. So, um, but and let's say that they're basically going to the courthouse, but instead they're going to go to like the Bahamas. And we we actually really I know that you disagree with us, but we would love for you to still come. That I can conceive of a scenario there where that might actually not be um, be totally wrong to be there and show that you actually care about these people because you do. We love the image of God in everybody, and and so I think that's. That's important. I think that, so you have to weigh all of those scenarios, but you have to think through about what's being said in this service, what's actually taking place, and does the Bible allow me in, in good conscience to, to, to say this, and to my presence, what is it actually indicating? So, yeah, it's good. It's a tough, tough question. Yeah, and I'll just say, a friend of mine who is deep in her Christian faith had to deal with the situation. And what she did, I thought, was interesting and creative. She was very close to both the people getting married. And she said, you all know me well enough to know that my faith is very important to me. And for reasons of conviction, it would be very difficult for me to be at your wedding in a supportive role. But I love both of you dearly. And when you come back from your honeymoon, I would love to host a dinner party for you at my house and celebrate with your friends. And, you know, I thought that was a great yeah. way to not have to violate conscience, but to keep relationship. Totally. That's great. All right. It's 8.30, and um, that really flew by. We thought, since we have this wonderful Appleton organ... Um, there's no one ever here it's because it is never played there's a couple things that we'd love to do um, one I think it's just such a beautiful place that we wanted to sing the doxology but before that 
I'd love it if Chris could come up. Um, Mims's birthday is tomorrow. So we're gonna sing happy birthday. Yeah. <laughs> All right. How about we stand? Yeah. Watch that candelabra. Yeah, I told him to be. Mims, get out of here. Come here. has ever done, which is to hear that famous organ. That's pretty cool. We're going to head back. If y'all want to eat some more pizza, there's some more drinks out there. Uh, but thanks for coming tonight. We'll be back in two weeks at Henry's, at on Henry's the in the whiskey.